for enticing teenagers. CBS's Elise Preston says it's leading to new fears of addiction. The hybrid flavors often combine both fruity and minty flavors and are commonly called ice flavors. A study in tobacco control shows two-thirds of 21-year-olds who vape ice-flavored e-cigarettes report having a dependence. The majority of those polled say they began using ice flavors in high school. This is CBS News. CBS News Radio is your home for breaking news. With our team of reporters around the country and the world, we give you the coverage you can trust. I want to tell my dad he's the best, but not with a coffee mug. With Staples Connect, it's possible. How about great tech that my dad can figure out without my help? Definitely possible with Staples Connect. Staples Connect has amazing prices on the best Father's Day tech. This week, Apple AirPods Pro are just $199 and iPads start at only $299. Explore all the innovative tech at your local Staples store or at staplesconnect.com. Staples Connect, the working and learning store. N619, limit two, in-store only. The pandemic has caused families to spend more time in close quarters than ever before. But if you're noticing an emotional distance between you and your child because of their drug or alcohol use, you may not know where to turn. Partnership to End Addiction can help. With free guidance, support, and resources, we work directly with families and communities across the country to help save lives. And we can help you too. To End Addiction, start with connection. Reach out to us at drugfree.org. A popular actor and producer is taking flack for lack of Afro-Latino representation in his new movie. debuted Friday, but already creator Lin-Manuel Miranda is under fire for not featuring more Latin actors with darker skin in prominent roles. In a statement, Miranda acknowledged the criticism, saying he can hear the hurt and frustration over colorism, adding, we fell short. I'm truly sorry. Miranda promised to do better in future projects. The film's adapted for Miranda's Tony Award-winning play. He said he wanted the film to feel like a love letter to Washington Heights. Monica Ricks, CBS News. New York City is getting ready for a parade along the Canyon of Heroes in Lower Manhattan. It'll take place July 7th and celebrate frontline workers and all they risk to take care of others during the pandemic. Governor Cuomo says 70% of adult New Yorkers have now received at least one COVID shot. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. Let's see, if something costs less, but people are happier with it, that sounds like something to look into, and that's MediShare. Maybe you've heard switching to MediShare to pay for health care can save the typical family 500 bucks a month, and that's huge. But it's also true that people are way more satisfied after making the switch, too. The customer satisfaction rate for MediShare is double that of the typical health insurance plan. Double. MediShare works. It's been around for more than a quarter century, and members have shared more than $3 billion of each other's bills. People love having telehealth and a huge nationwide PPO network. So, yeah, you can save a ton and like it better. Imagine being happy with how you're taking care of your health care. So if you're self-employed or part of the gig economy or you just want a plan you're happy with, you can call right now and get a price within two minutes. A very, very smart use of two minutes. Here's the number you need. 866-88-BIBLE. That's 866-88-BIBLE. 866-88-BIBLE. Today is Jenny's first day at her new office. Her coffee is strong, her hair is done, and as she checks her phone for traffic updates, 20 minute delay. Yikes. she realizes she made the right move by building a brand new office right in her own home. Wow. 
morning commute wasn't too bad. Made record time. Ohio University Credit Union can increase your space and your sanity. With our low-rate home equity loans, you can build the home office you've been dreaming of by using your hard-earned equity. You can also consolidate debt, take a vacation, or make some much-needed home improvements. Plus, with our new appraisal fee offer, you'll save even more. But you better hurry. This promotion ends June 30th. Visit OUCU.org slash equity and start applying today. That's OUCU.org slash equity. Equal housing opportunity. Loan subject to credit approval. Federally insured by NCUA. NMLS number 433809. Since 1921, Oblenis Hospital has been part of the fabric of Southeast Ohio, sharing in the healthcare journeys of our friends and neighbors. And since becoming part of the Ohio Health family, we've proudly continued that service through investments in a new ICU, primary and specialty care services, and an expanded emergency department. Learn more about our commitment to expert care in our community at ohiohealth.com slash 100. Have you heard of Project Rise? Are you a parent in Athens, Meigs, Perry, or Vinton counties? We provide internships, job shadowing, work study, transition planning, and graduation coaching. All students and parents have free access to these resources. For more information, please find us on Facebook at AMESC Project Rise. There are numerous free events and resources that you need to know about. Act now. Project Rise will help you with your future after high school. Follow us on Facebook at AMESC Project Rise. Hi, I'm Kim. And this is Ruth. Please join us every Wednesday morning on 970 WATH to make it happen. It's the Kim and Ruth Show. Well, it's really not it's the, not Kim, the and Kim and Ruth Show. It's really, <laughs> I don't know. Tune in to Make It Happen with Kim and Ruth every Wednesday morning at 10.06. And we'll spend time talking about health and wellness topics. And all aspects of healthy living. But we know that you're the real expert in your health, so let us help you make it happen. Wednesday morning on 970 WATH to make it happen. Southeast Ohio seniors can turn to Buckeye Hills Regional Council for help with long-term care services and support options, including information on vaccines, and transportation assistance. Buckeye Hills can be reached safely by phone for answers to your questions, and they can connect you to a wide range of community resources and information. Learn more by visiting BuckeyeHills.org or call 1-800-331-2644. That's 1-800-331-2644. Every day, people drive across bad railroad crossings without ever knowing the dangers that lurk down the track. Side obstructions, overgrown vegetation, natural terrain that blocks the view of impending doom. It's not a matter of if, but when a train will strike another victim. You can help. Report bad railroad crossings at angelsontrack.org. That's angelsontrack.org. Because bad crossings kill good drivers. Sponsored by Angels on Track, aired by OAB in this station. In our 71st year of service to Southeast Ohio, AM 970 and 97.1 FM. W-A-T-H. I look at it out there. It's a wonderful morning. 65 degrees here right at the moment. Headed up to, dare may say, only 78 today. Yeah, the next two days, 78, 77, the high. And we start to creep up again. Mid-80s for the weekend. Hey, we got a special edition today. 
Kelly Nottingham's going to be joining us. And then the general topic is our health and research. So let me see here. Let me get all my buttons just right. And uh, good morning, Kelly. Good morning. Hey, welcome. It's a beautiful morning out there, and I'm glad to have you on the air with me. Listen, um, you know, you. Uh, how long have you been in Athens now? So I have. Let's see here. My this is my second round. Yeah. Um. So I I did my undergrad at Ohio University back uh, in the nineties, and um, I've been back for about five, six years now. And and um, now you in the meantime, in between that, you were at the Cleveland Clinic, right? Yeah. And, and where else have you been in your? Oh, I. I've been a little bit everywhere. I, I did my rounds. Um, so I'm born and raised in um, Mineral, uh, West Virginia. So I started off there, and I uh, did some more time. I worked at West Virginia University. I worked in Kentucky at a, a drug and alcohol treatment center. I did prevention work there. I moved back to Marietta and worked in a treatment center there. Um, and then trekked up north to Pittsburgh and worked for a, a health um, insurance company and did some health education outreach for them and then ended up at Cleveland Clinic and then back to Ohio University. So I've kind of done a round robin of, of this area. And, and, and moving around like that, it has suited you or would you hope to finally settle down somewhere? <laughs> You know, I'm kind of glad to be back home. Um, being closer to home and closer yeah. to the family makes it nice. Um, uh, but I enjoyed living in the city and getting the new experiences uh, as well. Well, uh, currently, though, you're involved in Ohio University, right? And you're, in fact, uh, here in August, you're going to get one more degree. I know. One more degree, you know. And this is it. I'm done. I, I promised my family I'm done after this. Well, this will uh, be yes, so. your uh, your PhD, right? Mm-hmm. And um, see, right now you hold a what do they call it? An MPH, is that right? Correct. I have a master's in public health. And that was uh, from another school, though, right? Yeah, that was from West Virginia Uni- University. Yeah. In Morgantown. Yeah. Now, w- w- when you lived here in Athens and were an undergrad student years ago. Did, yeah. you, did you have any idea what you really wanted to do back then? I had no idea. I'll be really honest. Um, you know, I did. I, I wanted to be a physical therapist. That was what I thought I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And and by no means am I sliding physical therapy because they're very important. But I, I was at a time when it was extremely popular, um, and I got waitlisted for the program, and I had a great advisor at Ohio University who said, you know what, I think your brain works differently than more clinical. You should really look at public health. Mm-hmm. You think about how can you improve a bigger population than just one individual. And he said, why don't you check out public health? And um, I've, I've since thanked him for, uh, for uh, pushing me toward public health because it, it truly was where my calling was. It, it gives me a chance to help more individuals, and I was able to kind of be very much a jack-of-all-trades, master of nothing. But um, it gave me a chance to really um, make an impact in different fields and across multiple states. Now, 
I serve on a committee, uh, which is, uh, I don't know what you call it, the Dean's Advisory Committee, something like that, for the College uh-huh. of Health Sciences and Professions. Dean right. Lighty, and then now we have yeah. a new new dean coming on, right? And um, so, yeah. So, um, I, been, I have no idea why I was selected. Because this is not in my background, but I have learned so much over the last six or eight years I've been on it. Yeah. And um, and everybody else on the this advisory committee, they're all big deals in the health world. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so I just listen and I learn. But um, what? Um, let's see here now, you. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, your upbringing, would you? Tell me about that West Virginia experience, Williamstown. Yes, so I'm actually, I grew up, I I was born in Charleston, West Virginia, so the state capital, and my family, we ended up migrating north to Parkersburg area, and I I grew up in Mineral Wells, and, you know, I come from a working-class family. Um, I'm the first to go to college. In my family, I'm the first to get a degree, let alone a master's degree and now a Ph.D. Um, I, I had a great upbringing. I got to experience a lot in uh, West Virginia. My aunt, lived, aunt and uncle lived in Athens, so I was coming to Athens as a young kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, I just was the typical kid that played outside and, I always wanted to fix things and figure out stuff, and health has always been of interest to me. Um, and, you know, I had a very close connection with a great aunt who passed away when I was 13, but she was a teacher, and I think her her nurturing and curiosity kind of built my own personal curiosity as I grew up. Well, um, now your, your your parents' backgrounds, what did what, your dad do? So my dad owned uh, Rig Builders Truck Service, which is was a um, a diesel mechanic mm-hmm. uh, shop, and he did a lot of roadside work when the big diesel trucks, the semis, and large equipment for years. And then uh, when we were, I was probably in college when he built his garage, and so he had a garage not far from our house, right? And was able to bring people to him as as he got older, made it a little easier. Uh, but he retired, um, when did he retire? He retired about five or six years ago, and then my mom was the accountant for the company, uh-huh. and she kind of managed the books, and he did the manual labor. So I grew up in a home that, you know, work was very important, and it was a family-run business, so I'd answer telephone calls when I was home, and my sister worked for them as a uh, office manager. Well, I was just going to come to that. So uh, in terms of brothers and sisters, um, at least one I heard. Yep, I just have one sister. Okay. um, And uh, and I have a niece from her, so which was she and I are really close. And she's followed, uh, I humbly accept or share that she's a public health employee now as well. She just graduated from West Virginia University with her undergrad degree and is working as patient navigator. So... I've uh, kind of okay. planted the seed, and public health is a going patient, through the family. <laughs> I, 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 okay, i got to drill in on that. Patient sure. navigator. I don't think I understand what that might be. So this is a great service that many hospitals are using now, um, especially for patients who have chronic illness. 
And what they do is they are designated to a set of patients who have multiple doctor's appointments, and they make sure that their appointments are coordinated, that they have transportation, that they understand what's happening, um, that they're able to get their medication, and if not, they'll help them get set up with um, medication assistance programs. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really um, almost like a buddy in a hospital that will help you navigate through these large health conglomerates that can be really scary for patients. Well, for a long time, the health industry has not had such a thing. And just in the last dozen years or so, that has become a very welcome um, thing to, to do, you know? Oh, I agree with you completely. I think it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm glad they finally caught on that it was necessary. It's right. a shame it hasn't been around for a longer time. Well, uh, my good friend, Roxanne Mele Brunet, uh, who's been on this show a number of times and, uh-huh. and, and is a close friend, she thought you would be a great guest. So that's why you're here today. Now, Kelly, tell me, an MPH, yes, Masters of Pub or Master Degree of Public Health. Correct. Um, um, I that was unfamiliar to me until I got your um, notes or uh, the notes that um, Rock sent to me. Um, yeah. Now, how long have you held that um, level? Now you're going to age me. Um, Sorry. I've had my master's degree since 1998. Okay. Um, and at that time, especially, no one knew what public health was. So I immediately went into the more prevention, um, you know, drug and alcohol prevention programs, anti-smoking programs, and I did a lot of work there. Um, as you've had health things come up, like um, E. coli outbreaks and you know, now with COVID, mm-hmm. um, that's where you see public health really do what they do best. And that's where we do a lot of the um, uh, the tracing and follow-up phone calls and giving people suggestions and recommendations on how they can protect themselves, but then also the epidemiology of the, of the outbreak or the health issue of what's, who's more likely to get it, that type of thing. Well, um, if I'm not mistaken, um, mm-hmm. w- one of the areas that you're particularly keen on uh, are the kidneys, right? Correct, correct. Now, um, it's amazing to me how many times I hear of some friend who has had a kidney issue. Yeah. And... Um, so, folks, let's pretend that not everybody out there knows as much about kidneys as they should. So right. let me let me just hit you with a couple of points here. Not you, but our, our audience. Sure. Number one, the kidneys. Okay. Everybody's got two of them for the most part. Um, they're bean-shaped, and, and so you can picture that organ. You've probably seen it in some... Um, illustration or something. Each one is about the size of a human fist. Right. Um, now they're located just below the rib cage, one on either side of your spine. Um, now, what do they do? 
Well, they're filters. Okay, we have furnace filters. We've got, you know, all these different kinds of filters in our home. Well, this is a filter in your body. And it filters, get this, a half a cup of blood every minute. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, it removes different wastes and, for that matter, extra water and so on. And the product that is uh, uh, filtered off then is, not to be gross, but simply the, the term urine. Mm-hmm. Or pee, I guess we could say. Now, um, kidneys. We're hearing more and more about people having problems with kidneys. Um, now, kidneys are pretty, what would I say? They're. Um, it's pretty hard to mess up a kidney. Um, a physical injury can do it, yes. But... Um, the other things that can mess them up are things that occur over time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, like diabetes, right? Right. Uh, or if you have higher than normal blood pressure, conti- uh, con- rather consistently higher. Um, and let's see, what else can we... Uh, anyway, it, it, kidneys don't fail overnight. They just... It's a... It's a thing that takes place over time. And, um, you know, we have two of them. Um, I, I, dig, I dug into a simple question. Can you live without a kidney? And the import, basically the answer is no. But one will take care of your body just fine. Correct. And, I'm living proof of that. <laughs> oh, are you? Well, we'll need to know yeah. this story in a moment. Yeah. <laughs> so kidneys have particularly become an interest area for you, right? Correct. Now, um, tell us your story as far as now having one kidney. Sure. So um, back in my mom uh, started to have a, what they call end-stage kidney disease which is basically where you, you talk you alluded to the, the kidneys getting worse over time. So it's got multiple stages, um, with five being kind of the you, you need to either move to dialysis or have a transplant. Um, and my mom had been in the early stages because of uncontrolled diabetes, and um, she... Uh, and also had some medication that messed with her kidneys. So she was doing really well and had lost a bunch of weight and was feeling great. And unfortunately, her kidneys started to fail about 2004, 2005. I'm sorry, 2014, 2015. Yes. And um, as it started, started she was going to be put on dialysis and at that point I decided I was going to throw my hat into the ring to be uh, considered a living donor for her and other people in my family had um, tried and they did not either didn't match or like my father had um, long-term hypertension and they did not want to put him at risk so they said no Um, so people had differing reasons why they were disqualified I at the initial stage qualified 
easily, and um, I met my blood work matched hers perfectly. So I started what they call the pre-donation evaluation, mm-hmm. which is a two-day, pretty intensive process where you go through multiple tests, and that's like I probably had, uh, I'd say, 30 vials of blood taken. I had EKG, a chest X-ray, a stress test a CT scan, a psych evaluation, meetings with the physicians, a meeting with the surgeons, uh, the whole soup to nuts. Um, and they, everybody said I looked really good, um, except they came back and they said, your, bl- your blood cholesterol is a little on the border. We'd like you to go on um, medication and come back and be reassessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had to go through that process. Uh, so that takes about a three- to six-month period for those drugs to really take effect. And I wasn't high, but they didn't want to give me – They basically that process is to make sure you're going in at optimal health mm-hmm. so that I don't have any complications post-donation. Um, I was reassessed and got approved, and we had the donation on uh, March 6, 2016. And we donated um, my mom immediately when they connected my kidney to her. She immediately started producing urine, which was the first time in a year that she had produced urine. Um, So she was tickled. uh, But it, it, it was that's what started my interest in kidneys and living donation. And then when I got finished with the process, I started looking at the fact that over 650 million people are in end-stage renal disease, and 468,000 people are on dialysis, um, which when you look at the cost to health care for dialysis and the cost to the, the individual in dialysis, transplantation is cheaper, and in long term, it, it increases the quality of life of the, of the recipient. So that kind of is what stemmed my interest. Um, additionally, unfortunately, my mom's uh, kidney, my kidney failed in my mom over oh, time. So yeah. about six months in, she got an infection. And because of the immunosuppressant, uh, the physicians had to make a decision. Do we stop giving her the immunosuppressants and take care of the infection? Or do we take care of the kidney and she potentially could die from the infection? And, and of course, as a family, we decided it was best to remove her from the the medication so we could take care of her for her infection. Um, so she, over time, ended up back on dialysis. So my kidney worked for a while, and then it also reduced the burden of going to dialysis three times a week for almost two years. And then now she's on on uh, dialysis three times a week, which is is very painful and difficult for the uh, transplant. Or I'm sorry for the recipient for the uh, the patient. So. Um, that's kind of expanded my interest in, you know, not only looking at the donor, but how can we help the recipient um, make sure that they are prepared for potential um, failure and, you know, the potential they may have to go back on dialysis. Uh, let me just ask a few questions because I, sure, I don't do. know the, the answer, but dialysis. Uh, there's some dumb TV show on. It's a comedy, but it seems like the, yes. the commonality is that every all the characters in it are on dialysis. Yeah. Um, 
is it common for three times a week? Is it, uh, or is that more than normal or less than normal? What, whatever normal means. Right. right. Um, so it really varies on the individual how often they have to have dialysis, and it, it depends on how much fluid they're holding. Mm-hmm. So my mom started off at just twice a week, once a week, then went to twice a week, and then went to three times a week. Can that, can that be done with ports? So she has what they call a fistula. So they uh, it's a surgical implant that they put in her vein, okay. in her arm. Mm-hmm. Um, other people get it in their neck. They can get it in their groin area. It does, in some, if they're doing um, like the at-home dialysis, there will be a port in their like stomach area. Yeah. Um, my mom goes to a center, and it's, it's a plastic thing where they stick the needles into mm-hmm. her arm so it's the hope is to protect her vein and then over time she occasionally has to go in and she calls it rotorootering but you know they have to go in and kind of clean it out because of just scar tissue forming inside of it so they kind of clean it out every so often well kidney donations sure that's been around a while hasn't it it, the first kidney donation was done in 1954. Well, the first successful one was in 1954. Well, that's a while. And, yeah, it's um, been a while. Certainly, things have um, improved uh, along the way. Now, um, the fact that your mother... Uh, so your kidney is no longer effective for her, what you gave it's her. Still, it's still... Well, it's, it's, um, not working at full capacity. Okay. So it's, I think it's still producing about 11%, okay. uh, which is, you know, helps her, uh, makes the dialysis process a little easier because she does have some functioning. Her kidneys completely don't work. They're dysfunctional. They don't work at all. And, and again, I don't even know if this question is makes any sense, but can someone have more than one transplant? So that's a great question, and so my mom is actually um, trying to be reassessed for to go back on the transplant list. I see. So yes, they can have multiple transplants. Um, what they will do is they have to go through the full assessment again, mm-hmm. um, and they have to meet the same criteria. Um, and they also are scrutinized a little more closely um, to make sure that it wasn't something that they did that caused the failure. You know, so that they aren't doing risky behaviors like, you know, drinking heavily, smoking, you know, eating nothing but cheeseburgers. You know, they look at all of those pieces to make sure that it's um, it's a, a viable right. recipient because they, they don't want someone else to miss out on it. Because you're looking at about 100,000 people that are on a kidney transplant waiting list today. Do you right think, now that are waiting um, for a kidney. Okay, so, you know, we got, what do we have, 331 million people in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything that encourages people to consider being a donor, regardless of whether they have a relationship with the person that is in need or not? Um, so, I don't know okay. if that made sense, but I'll keep going. Yes. Here. Uh, do, 
is there, and, and you know, th- we're talking about kidneys right now, but we could be talking about some other organs too, which maybe you could, again, update us on what those are. But uh, start start first with, okay, so to my knowledge, my kidneys are good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hope that all stays that way, of course. Um, do people actually come forward and say, um, now I'm 71. Do people come forward and say, I'm willing to donate a kidney? Yeah. And to someone that I don't even know. Does that happen? It does. And it's, it's um, so I, part of my research for my dissertation, I interviewed individuals who were actively in the donation review, the evaluation process. And um, I was overwhelmed by the majority of my individuals I interviewed were altruistic donors. So they decided they were going to donate um, just out of the kindness of their heart, that they felt compelled, that they had a calling, they wanted to make a difference, and this was a way they saw as a way that they could make a difference for somebody. Hmm. Um, they did, there are several uh, donor assistance programs out there that help uh, provide some assurances for the donor. So when I say that, that's talking about um, everything from giving them reimbursement for their travel and expenses that they have for the donation. Um, that includes some salary protections that they'll give, like a, up to, I think it's up to $1,500 uh, while they're uh, recovering from the from the donation, so that way they have some funds come in. Um, and then they also have some insurance protection and other types of protection. Like if I would go into kidney failure, which we're going to pray that doesn't happen, but if I would have kidney problems because I'm a living donor, I get elevated up the transplant list. Right. So if, God forbid, I would need a kidney because I did this altruistic decision, even though it was for my family member, I would be then moved up the list. Um, And oftentimes, the individuals who go into the process that are wanting to donate to a family member or a friend, and they find that they can't donate, they'll do something called a paired exchange, which what that is, is that they say, I will donate to anybody that needs a kidney. And what that does is they try to match you with a potential recipient, as well as matching your intended recipient with a donor. So it starts like a a donation chain. Um, And that happens often, too. So it's that that I want to do something, and even though I can't donate it to my my intended recipient, I'm going to donate to somebody so that my intended can get a kidney. And that's becoming more popular as well. The well, we've been talking about kidneys, but name some other organs that are kind of in this degree of sure of um, so you can also you interchangeability. Can also donate, I guess is the word I'm going to use interchangeability. Yeah, you, yeah. So you can donate part of your or uh, liver, liver, and uh, stem cells. Okay. And those are really the only two that you can do while you're living. Um, there's also the option to be a deceased donor where, you know, I've made the decision 
um, that when I pass away, that whatever organs they can harvest and use for somebody, mm-hmm. harvest is a terrible word, whatever organ they can use to help somebody once I've passed away, I would like them to take those organs. And there it's you, it, one person who decides to donate as a deceased donor can help up to eight individuals. So that's donating eyes, um, lungs, kidneys, um, Oh, gosh, I've all of a sudden become completely brain dead here. That's all right. Uh, but you can donate all of that. When my dad all passed. All any viable organs. When my dad passed, he was 95. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. My mom was 95. He was 90 when he died. Um, I got the call from the institution saying he had passed. And I had been with him the night before and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't expect him to pass overnight or anything like that, um, where I would have stayed, right? But right. the point is here that uh, they said, you know, we're so sorry, but. And then they said, is there anything that um, organ, I can't remember the exact wording because it's so many years ago, but it was something to the effect of, do you wish to, um, did he wish to donate any organs? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking at 90 years of age, are his organs fairly well used up? And uh, so, and I wasn't thinking clearly at the moment. And I said, right. well, well, give me some examples. And then they said, um, oh, it was something, uh, one portion of the eye. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I can't remember at the moment. And then uh, there were several things. And I said, if you think they are healthy, yes. Um, and that that was that. But it was, this is really something we all need to think about. And, oh, and, I, and share yeah, I with our, um, our housemates, our wives, husbands, whatever, mm-hmm. family, uh, what your wishes are, right? Oh, most definitely. So I, I've had this conversation with my husband. I, I had it even when I was going in for the donation. Mm-hmm. I said, God forbid something goes wrong. And I put it in my living, you know, my living will. I said, if something goes wrong, take whatever you can get. You know, I, I, I can't take it with me. I'm, you know, it's, it's not going to be beneficial to me. Let help somebody else. Right. Um, but it, it's, very important to have that conversation up front because in a situation where a loved one's passed away or they're in that that limbo area where they're you're making the decision to you know um turn off the uh, life support if you've had that conversation ahead of time it makes it easier on your family on your loved ones to be able to say hey i know this is kelly's wish she wants to you know, help whomever she can. And um, if we don't do that, it, it does put a lot of burden on our family members, and that's difficult. You mentioned that um, over your um, professional career, you've worked a lot with people that had uh, drinking problems and, and um, drug problems and things like that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And um the um, 
okay, so when you receive in August this doctoral degree, uh, what is your intended, um, what do you want to do then? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> so there's, I, I'm leaning a little toward a higher education um, so that I can continue doing research. Uh, but I will say that I, I have a um, affinity to working in hospitals and um, you know, health organizations or the public health department in the area. But I'm kind of up in the air right now. Um, my research focuses on patient burden and helping activate the patient so they understand healthcare a little better. So I have that flexibility right now to either go into higher ed and teach. Um, I think it's important for students and upcoming healthcare professionals and just individuals who are going to be patients or caregivers to understand how to have conversations and how to um, be that informed patient. Um, but also working in a hospital setting, I could make a big impact as well. So right now it's who will hire me. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, I saw somewhere in your background, PCORI, um, Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. Yep. What's that all about? So that is a, an organization. It's federally funded. It's a congressional, um, oh God, a congressional order, and they are set up. It's a conglomerate uh, that has been set up to facilitate researchers to be very mindful of engaging the patient in their research. And so it's not simply just, hey, I have patients that are in my study. It's actually having the patient be active in the development of the questions, the implementation and recruitment of the study participants, the analysis of the data, and the development of the reporting and disseminating that information. So it's engaging the patient to be a co-researcher right along with the researcher. Um, because what, and over the years we've noticed, and, and I, I, I deem myself more of a community-engaged researcher myself, is that we often see researchers come into a community or come into an organization, do their research, pack it up, and leave. And they don't share get the feedback of are we asking the right questions, are we doing what we need to, are we meeting your needs as a community, as well as we don't share our findings and give that feedback back and get solicit their input to make sure we're representing the data appropriately. Mm -hmm. So that's what PCORI is about. They, they uh, have quite a large wallet, so their money is very difficult to write grants for and to get that funding, but when you do get the funding, it, it's very prestigious, and it does give a researcher or community partner um, that accolade of that they're more community-engaged, research-engaged. Um, and like Even in my dissertation work, I did something called member checking, so I interviewed several a living kidney donors while they're in the process. And once I finished, I summarized all the data and I sent it out to all of the people I was interviewing and solicited their feedback of, did I, did I capture everything correctly? 
am I giving you, am I representing what you said appropriately, and did I miss anything? And then they sent their feedback to me, and I was able to make changes as needed um, so that I'm presenting the data appropriately. You're... Um, in August, uh, you will have a Ph.D., and it is, mm -hmm. as I understand it, titled Translational Biomedical Sciences. Correct. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> I know. Um, so when you think of research, you have the, the scientists that you think of that's working with Petri dishes and test tubes. Mm-hmm all the way through, like, clinical trials, and those could be, like, the vaccine trials you heard about, you know, earlier this year where the people were volunteering to get the vaccine to see if it's right. effective or not, right. to research that takes it, the information out into the community and says this is, you know, how to be an active patient. So it's, it's the translational piece of it is taking the bench, what they say to the bedside and then into the community. So it's taking the information that my colleagues that are doing more test tube research um, into the clinic and then on the, into the community. So I tend to be more of a researcher that focuses on the community end. Mm -hmm. um, I've done clinical research. Uh, I can do vaccine trials. I've done them before. Uh, but I tend to be more of the community end where I'm really working with the community to do some research. Did that help make it a little more clear? I think so, yes. Not as clear as mud. But, <laughs> um, you know, here we have just gone through, what, 18 months or so of mm -hmm. the ultimate in community. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I'm, I met a woman, I don't know, three days ago, walking, taking her dog for a walk in our neighborhood. And for uh -huh. some reason or other, I, someone I had not met before. Um, and so we were having a conversation about pets and stuff like that. And um, I took a little step near her just because we were, I don't know, four or five feet apart. And uh, she backed up. And I immediately realized, oh. Um, and I said, I'm fully vaccinated. Are you? And she said, no. And I said, what's your concern there? And she said, I just don't believe in it. And now this is not a youngster. Mm -hmm. Not an oldster either. I, I, if I had to guess her age, I'd say 55. Um, here you are in the health fields. Um, why? Okay, just talk about it. What do you think? Why oh. why are people reluctant some mm -hmm. to to help resolve this major pandemic? So that's that is the question of the hour. Um, I I think you know I was I would have signed up for the vaccine trials if I would have had the opportunity. That's as to my in my personal nature, I think there's been a lot because the pandemic was so unknown, and that information not only 
from the viable research or viable resources, people like the CDC, the NIH, um, there was information coming from them, but because it changed so much because their information and their knowledge grew, you know, they didn't know what they didn't know. And then as they learned, they were making modifications. I think some of that caused some hesitancy. I think um, there's a lot of misinformation out there in the, the, the uh, stratosphere of the Internet and YouTube and the television. Um, and I think dependent on where you find your, your information, you may be getting um, unreliable information, and they make it now so believable and it looks so real uh, that it makes it challenging to discern what's fake and what's not. Um, and then I think there are a, a subset of individuals who are just very hesitant to vaccinate no matter what, be that that they're afraid of needles, be that they're afraid of you know, potential side effects, um, you know, be that whatever. I, I think that's there. And I think that's where individuals like myself and other public health professionals and physicians, we really have to take time to not only explain what's happening, but listen to their concerns and try to help provide them with appropriate information. Um, I know it's, I, I have family members that are hesitant to get the vaccine and, um, or someone, some of them are adamant they'll never get it. And I pause and I try to reflect and, and I actually kind of got aggravated with a couple of them. And I said, listen, we don't have smallpox now for a reason. Mm -hmm. We don't have smallpox because of the vaccination. We don't see polio here because of the vaccination. You know, we don't want those to come back. It's, that's what we're trying to do with um, COVID. And I think the challenge is, is that there, there's concerns, you know, we might have to have a booster. Well, a booster is nothing but a, like a flu vaccine. It's us getting the flu vaccine once a year right. helps us protect ourselves from getting the flu or getting a bad case of the flu. Um, I think that it's just the making sure we have viable and honest information. And when changes occur, we have to be honest about why they've occurred. We, this information is changing because we've learned X, Y, and Z from this data. Um, and I think that's where the media, not to criticize the media, but it's, they've got 30 seconds to say something and they don't always have the luxury of having a conversation like this where you can contribute 35, 45 minutes on a conversation about vaccines. It's, it's um, they're, they're time constrained, so they have to get the soundbite out. But giving more information um, on a repeated measure would be beneficial, I think. Um. I was looking over your CV, and mm -hmm. to my audience, I'll just tell them, uh, 17 pages, <laughs> which is kind of I'm fun. a bit of a nerd. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what are some other things you're really proud of? And, and also then go the next direction. What, what yet do you want to do that you haven't had the chance to do? That's a good question. So I would say one of my the proudest moments for me was getting my degree. Um, you know, I come from working class 
Uh, no one else in my family had a degree. Uh, my parents, bless their hearts, struggle with explaining what I do for a living. Um, and they, they always have, and many of my family members do, but they're proud of me, and I'm proud of the fact that I was able to, to give that education and inspire others to get educated and learn more. Right. Um, I also... I worked, I had the privilege of working on a tobacco cessation program in grad school uh, that specifically targeted adolescents. And um, it became a very effective program and ended up being nationally disseminated, not because of me personally, but because of the investigators I worked for. And seeing young people who were two pack a day smokers quit smoking um, was something that for me personally, really resonated in pride, and I felt good about the fact that we were making a difference. The one thing I would like to do is help the general public understand how to be an active patient, so that way they can an feel Let me get that again. An active patient? Yeah, an active, informed patient, that patient that is, that's confident enough to go in with questions and know it's okay to ask questions, um, and it's okay to say, no, I need to understand this. I don't, I don't understand your three-second answer. I need to have more detail, and it's okay to do that. Right. Um, I worked with a friend of mine who was diagnosed with lung cancer at the age of 44, and um, not non-smoker, just it happened that she developed lung cancer, and she didn't understand her health insurance. She didn't understand how to get a second opinion. Um, so I worked with her and helped her navigate the, the, the um, health care insurance world and getting approvals to go get a second opinion and understanding that there's assistance programs that can help her pay for her medication. So I would like to be able to help patients have that support, not just because you have a friend who knows something, but that you know how to access those resources, especially in this area, um, that we are a bit medically underserved. Um, you know, I know Ohio Health and Holzer and Marion Memorial and Camden Clark and Parkersburg do great jobs. They're great hospital systems, but they're also limited to the number of patients they can handle. And I'd like to be able to make sure the resources are available for our patients. I, uh, you know, I've been... Um... I had a uh, tumor removed in my sinus. Oh my! Yeah. At Cleveland Clinic, mm-hmm. and uh, the doc that did it—he's terrific—and now is practicing down in Florida. Um, that's a great place. Ohio mm-hmm. State's Wexner Center and the Spielman and all that stuff. Those are terrific. My wife uses them a lot. Uh, she has a stage four cancer. Um, and the, um, you know, Ohio health is a terrific institution Mm -hmm. and and Holzer, we've done stuff with them. We are so lucky to be in this region with so many terrific things nearby Mm -hmm. with knowledge and, well, you know what I'm getting at. Oh, and and having access to getting care locally, and if it's beyond the ability of the hospital, not because they, they aren't smart enough, just because the facilities don't yes. have everything, right. 
is that you can then be transferred to a larger facility, sister facility that can help facilitate your care. And then maybe, you know, that that in itself is, is huge. Folks, I've done a bad job of mentioning uh, midway through the show who our guest is today. It's Kelly Nottingham. She presently holds an MPH. That's a Master's of Public Health. Um, in in the see, that was from um, WVU, right? Correct, correct. And then um, you had your undergraduate degree uh, right here in psychology at Ohio University, yep. right? Correct. Okay. And now she's enrolled at Ohio University again, and in August will receive her doctoral degree. Um, and, and, you know, Kelly, we've never met her anything, but Roxanne has referred us to you, and you've been a great guest. I hope we get a chance to meet sometime. I do, too. I hope so. And sorry I wasn't able to make it there in the uh, studio today. That's all right. But I'm glad we were able to still connect. You bet. Well, listen, take care and, you know, be sure to reach out to me if you've got something new to share. I sure will. And thank you so much for the opportunity. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Well, Scott, that was a good one. Let's see what we have coming up tomorrow. We've got, uh, oh, county commissioner tomorrow, right? Are you back there? Yes, I'm here. I'm all ears. All ears. Yeah. It's going to be a nice day today and. A little cool tonight and tomorrow night down into the 40s. Compared to the past, yes, but uh, just a few days and then back up again. In our 71st year of service to Southeast Ohio, AM 970 and 97.1 FM. WATH FMs. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. Freedom for Californians as the state reopens for the fully vaccinated. After many months close, now I see the light is coming. Most restrictions are being lifted today, much to the relief of Sarah Trubnick, who owns a restaurant in San Francisco. It's a different sort of excitement than any other restaurant opening I've done. You know, those were pure excitement. This is excitement and a little bit of nervousness, a little hesitation. But I think that's going to kind of melt away. Fans will be back in the stands at full capacity for the Dodgers-Phillies game tonight. President Biden has wrapped up two days of meetings in Brussels to fly to Geneva for a sit-down with Vladimir Putin tomorrow. Correspondent Stephen Portnoy is in Geneva. From the Geneva Conventions to the WTO, the modern history of this city tracks with the modern history of diplomacy. During the Cold War especially, Geneva was the place to be. Former government official Claude Bonnard recalls a series of high-profile meetings here. We had this big summit Reagan Gorbachev. Hopes were high in 1985 that the U.S. and Soviet leaders could achieve detente. And while this Biden-Putin summit occurs at a low point for relations, the veteran summit watcher Bonard makes this observation. Before to negotiate, we have to speak together. Stephen Portnoy, CBS News, Geneva. A mass shooting at a fire hydrant factory in the south. CBS's Jim Crisula. Police confirmed two people were killed and two were wounded when an employee opened fire early this morning at a company called Mule manufacturing. It happened in the small town of Elbertville, Alabama, about an hour southeast of Huntsville. Police believe the gunman killed himself inside his car. 
Police in Chicago say four people are dead after a shooting that stemmed from an argument at a home on the south side. Police say two of the victims were hit in the back of the head. Four people were injured, at least two critically. So far, no arrests. Airlines are struggling to keep up with a surge in travel after letting go workers during the pandemic. CBS News travel advisor Peter Greenberg. In Dallas, American Airlines, which earlier this year cut 30 percent of its support staff, has now asked corporate employees to volunteer to work six-hour shifts at the airport to help passengers check in for their flights and to get through security checkpoints. About 200 Amazon employees tell the New York Times while the company racked up huge profits during the pandemic, they were laboring under unfair conditions. Jody Cantor, a CBS News contributor, wrote the Times article after a year-long investigation. Those executives are actually worried that Amazon could run out of workers because they are burning through workers so quickly. The Dow down 121 points. This is CBS News. Looking to hire? Indeed will help you speed up the process. They have 135 skills tests to help you find the right candidates faster. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Right now at O'Reilly Auto Parts, get up to a $15 gift card after mail-in rebate when you purchase select Superstart batteries. With the power and capacity your vehicle demands, Superstart batteries are designed for lasting performance and consistent starts. Turn the key with confidence with Superstart batteries only at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. You went online to switch your car insurance to Progressive so you could save money. But then you saw a friend request from an old summer camp buddy. And now here you are, clicking through photos of his kickball team from 2011. Hmm, looks like they won the championship that year. Then he moved to Tulsa. Oh, a new tattoo. Yes, they said it was easy to save hundreds on car insurance with Progressive, but they forgot about the rest of the Internet. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average savings by new customer surveyed who saved in 2019. It was 40 years ago today. Duran Duran's self-titled album debuted June 15, 1981 in the UK. It featured chart-topping singles like Planet Earth and one of their most popular songs to date. The album reached number three on the UK album charts and stayed in the top 100 for 118 weeks. Duran Duran reached platinum status the following year. The album didn't do too hot in the US until the band's second album, Rio, dropped in 1986.